so the question that we face with, with people is, how do we encourage safe gun ownership and responsible gun ownership in the United States? From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. All right, welcome back to the Prosperous Doc Podcast. My name is Shane Tenney, and so grateful to have you with me today for what is a big topic and a big conversation. Today's topic is one that I have wanted to try and tackle for a long time now. If you're listening to this, I'm guessing that you are concerned about the raging gun violence crisis that we have in our country. And it is a complex issue. It's a thorny topic. There are cogent arguments on all sides of this. And knowing where to begin can feel like a daunting task. You know as well as I do the statistics. I won't read them ad nauseum here, but just to frame the topic a bit, in 2021, which is where we have some of the more recent data, there were over 48,000 gun deaths in America alone, and about half of those were self-inflicted suicides, and about half of those were homicides. Many, many more people have been injured by guns, and of course, that doesn't even begin to reflect the thousands and thousands and thousands of families, of communities, of friends who still have a whole of grief in their lives from the loss of someone who is dear to them. As we're recording this in mid-2023, there have been more mass shootings in our country than there have been days in the year. I think we're pacing about 330 mass shootings, as it's often defined, which is atrocious. And knowing how to approach this, as I already said, is just overwhelming. I'm grateful to have crossed paths with my guest today, Dr. David Calloway, is not only a physician with Atrium Healthcare in Charlotte, North Carolina, he's also a U.S. military veteran. He is a gun owner, and he brings a really unique perspective to this that I want to unpack with you today. Dave, thanks so much for being with me on the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Yeah, Shane, thanks for reaching out and, and for the time. I'm looking forward to chatting with you and your audience. Yeah. Well, I think the best place to begin is really where our conversation started so many months ago. Can you just explain a little bit of your background and unique perspective on this topic of gun violence? Absolutely. And so the perspective that I bring to this topic, I am an emergency medicine physician in Charlotte, North Carolina. I work at the region's only level one trauma center. And so more or less, if you get shot in and around the region, you come to our emergency department. I have been practicing for about 20 years. I was a physician with the United States Navy and the Marine Corps. I served in Iraq in 2003 with a mobile surgical unit. And then when I left active duty in, in 2005, I spent a bulk of my career working on security and health security and violence-related issues. And it worked pretty extensively with law enforcement. And, and now I serve as a sworn task force officer with U.S. Marshals. So I approach this problem from a couple of different perspectives. One is a physician, two is a law enforcement officer, three is a father. And then fourth, and probably most importantly, a, as an American and a community member who see an issue in front of us that I really think that if we put our minds to, we can help address. Tell me in the 
litany of experience you've had over the last couple decades. Do you remember the first time this topic of gun violence kind of landed on your radar? Well, I don't know if I remember the first time gun violence landed on my radar. I think there are three experiences throughout my career that stand out in terms of what's framed my approach. And I went into emergency medicine. I did some trauma surgery stuff because I I wanted to be able to engage with families and, and treat really sick people. When I was a young physician just out of medical school, I was in Kuwait and Iraq, and, and I cared for some of the first Marines injured in the invasion of Iraq. And that was a pretty impactful moment in my career. I was a year and a half out of medical school, and I was taking care of barrel-chested freedom fighters and seeing the, the damage that could be inflicted by weapons of war. And then when I got back out and sort of earlier in my career, about 60 years in, um, Sandy Hook happened, and one of my good friends was the physician on scene at Sandy Hook. And so I got to experience the damage that it can cause a community and to a provider and worked with him and just with a friend to him over years as he sort of processed what had happened and then the actions and lack of actions afterward. And then my first day in Charlotte, where I saw six gunshots in my first shift, including two-year-old who was shot through the neck while being held by his mother on a porch during a drive-by. And these three events really, for me, frame the issues. War, and when violence is expected, mass shootings and just the damage it causes to communities. And then what is really the problem, which is this frequent violence that happens on, on our streets. Yeah. And so I guess pivoting off of that, it's so tempting to look at this issue and try to land on one side of a fence. Either guns are bad or guns are fine and people are bad. And I think that's probably too simplistic and not constructive to uh, viable solutions. How do you frame the problem given your perspective? So you're right. I mean, people want to say guns are bad, guns are good. I mean, good and bad are moral judgments, and it's hard to put a moral judgment on an inanimate object. And so I think one of the arguments that people who are supporters of gun rights make is that the gun is a tool. And I would agree the gun is a tool, a firearm is a tool, and it's a tool meant for killing things, whether it's hunting, self defense war, and that is the purpose of a firearm. And so we just need to be very clear, right? Like good or bad moral judgments aside, like a gun is meant for killing. And so if you acknowledge that, then sure. I mean, guns are used by humans. And so the question that we face with with people is how do we encourage safe gun ownership and responsible gun ownership in the United States? You can look at all the stats. The United States has way more guns per person, way more gun deaths, way more gun injuries than anywhere in the world. But we also have this unique clause in the constitution And I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but the fact is that our country has a different relationship with guns than other places in the world. And so the question, again, is how do we make that the safest relationship, the most accountable and responsible relationship, and one that that doesn't result in physical and mental health and community damage um, at the rates that it is today? Keep talking a little bit more about that, because, of course, we're not going to tease out all the tentacles of this topic in 30 minutes here. But you've got overlying issues of, as you referenced there briefly, mental health, issues of race, inequity. I guess just talk a little bit more about. Yeah, well, I mean, so just like the pandemic or climate change or any of these complex issues, what what I personally like to do is just try to get agreement on the problem. And, And the way I would frame this and the way I do frame this is, is it acceptable that the number one cause of death for children in America is gun violence. Is that an acceptable status quo? Is it acceptable that 50,000 Americans die each year from guns, which is more than HIV and pretty significant rate? Is that an acceptable status quo? 
Because if our country all comes together and says, yeah, that's fine, no problem, then let's move on because we're not going to solve the problem. The answer is no, it's not acceptable that our kids die at this rate from guns, is it? And it's not acceptable that we spend $560 billion a year on gun violence and the consequence of gun violence. Then let's figure out how we can come together and start working on solving the problem. And people like to go with simple solutions, and this is a complex systems problem. And so there is no simple solution. There's no one thing that's going to stop this. There's no one thing that's going to change this. But we know there are a bunch of little things that can improve safe gun ownership, responsible gun ownership, and then can start decreasing both suicide and homicide rates, and especially unintentional injuries, which often gets left out of the conversation. Yeah, so let's go there in just a minute. But it seems to me, and I think statistics uh, back this up, and you can clarify, but that while the right to own a gun, to the point you make, has been protected by the Constitution since the country's founding, gun violence has just seemed to explode over the last couple of decades. You mentioned Sandy Hook, Columbine, Paducah. I mean, there's the list is on and on and on. Is that, in fact, the case based on the research you've done? And when, to what do you attribute the spike, the surge, this tidal wave of gun violence that we hear about daily? So the answer is yes, it is true. So the number of gun deaths have gone up, um, especially in the last couple of years since the pandemic, especially within certain populations. So the answer is yes, overall, gun violence, suicide, homicides, and accidents have gone up. Yes, overall, mass shootings have gone up in the last decade as well. That is objectively true. I think that when we get into the why, it's really hard to prove why this is happening. I would say there are a few things that are contributing. One is certainly access to weapons. I mean, more guns does not decrease gun violence. That's just a fact. Now, people argue about when and where, but like more guns on the street, less accountability for gun ownership, loosening of ownership laws, registration laws, loosening of training requirements. Certainly when people talk about mental health, Mental health is always, or mental resilience is always an issue with violence, whether it drives the violence as a consequence of violence or is involved in generational trauma that's passed down. But you can't separate mental health out from it. But some people sometimes, when they look at this, they say, oh, by mental health, they mean the person is psychotic or they are a sociopath. That is not the case in the vast majority of this, right? By mental health, I mean depression, substance abuse. PTSD, these things are all contributing to the issues. And then this is my opinion on this piece, but I think that the media environment in the last 13 years, and then the lack of action, lack of accountability from people who are supposed to be leading on this, especially our politicians, has really driven a degree of both angst, but also nihilism. This is, in fact, accepted as as the way life is going to be. And so you have a small, passionate group fighting against it. You have a small, passionate group fighting to to prevent any action. And then the vast majority in the middle just are in this position where they say, we're tired of the yawn and screaming. We just hope it's not our kid that gets killed in school this year. And so to the, the direction I think you were heading a minute ago, if you frame the problem as just, or not as just, but if we start by framing the problem as there's an outcome of guns being the leading cause of death amongst children in the country, if that's unacceptable, then there are undoubtedly multiple small solutions that can make a difference in the absence of having one big thing that clearly needs to be changed. And so where does that lead your thinking as you start to think about framing the problem in that way? How do you start to frame possible solutions or things that could begin to be effective? 
Well, Shane, I think like with most complex systems problems, the way I start is build the coalition. So start thinking about who has a stake in this, who cares about this, bring them together and get agreement on the problem like we talked about before. And don't go down the rabbit holes of assault weapon ban is a great one. It's like, what is an assault weapon? Is it a machine gun? Is it not? You know, like it's a worthless argument for this particular case. And people's opinions don't matter for if we want to reduce this. Bring together the coalition, get agreement on the problem. Too many kids are dying from guns in America. Too many people are dying from guns in America. If you agree on the problem statement, then when you bring together the right coalition, you can start thinking through what are the solutions. And we often talk about taking a public health approach to gun violence. And I think that that is a good approach. I'm not sure if it's a public health crisis, but it's a good approach to how you solve a problem. It's what we did with road traffic accidents and seatbelts. But what I would offer is a slightly different approach, which is public health plus. And so what we learned in, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is we use a strategy called focus empiricism, where there were interventions that didn't have great data, but the experts thought that they probably were good. And so they set up a framework where they put the interventions in place and studied them while they were doing them, and then rapidly adapted and evolved and iterated to improve care. And a classic example of this is whole blood transfusion for trauma patients. So that in 20 years ago, this was not a thing. 100 years ago, it was. 20 years ago, it wasn't. Now it's back to being the standard of care. The same approach here, which is we know that there are things or we think there are things that make sense that make gun ownership safer. Let's get agreement on those and start putting those in place and studying it and seeing what the effect is. Get agreement, get some successes, see if we can decrease the deaths and injuries. And if we do that, then we can continue to build on that success. Do you understand your personal cash flow? You know the combination of your monthly income and monthly expenses. Do you ever think about how much money you made last year and wonder, where did it all go? Understanding where your money goes today is essential to creating an actionable plan to achieve your financial goals for tomorrow. Take control of your finances by downloading the free personal cash flow worksheet. The Prosperous Doc podcast is underwritten by the financial planning firm of Spa Dameron Tenney, and you can download this free personal cash flow worksheet at sdtplanning.com and click on financial resources. Don't let another month of money confusion go by when you have access to free help. Again, the website is sdtplanning.com. Click on financial resources to download the free personal cash flow worksheet. A couple of questions that come to mind. Number one, when you say get the right coalition together, I think so often as I guess I'll characterize myself as a lay person in this conversation, as a lay person, it feels like, oh, well, this is a, a public policy or a legislative issue. Like if Congress isn't going to act, if we're not going to begin to require a different behavior, then I don't know what I can do. Maybe part of what you're saying is there's nothing wrong with looking for some legislative relief or action or something, but there's extra legislative type actions through a coalition. So my question there is, who do you see as being the most relevant parties in this coalition for a discussion? And then what are some of the things that you start to see as being iterative attempts that could be studied? Great question. And we could do a whole separate podcast on our government, but what I'll just leave it with this one line, which is the government in general doesn't lead, the government follows. And especially our elected officials, they follow the money. 
So that is the fact. So we're waiting on our government to legislate something around this. It's generally not going to happen. Even last year's landmark revolutionary gun violence reduction legislation wasn't really like that landmark. So when I talk about coalitions, the people that are often on the, the two different divides, you know, you have the NRA, you have the gun shop owners, and then you have gun owners and professional societies. And then on the other side, you have things like uh, groups like Every Town USA and, and sort of gun violence prevention advocates. Positions are generally in the middle, but closer to the gun violence prevention side, right? Almost every major position, professional society has a gun violence reduction, gun violence prevention policy statement, and they generally support the same issues. When I talk about coalitions, so I think physicians have a really strong voice because we're on the front line. We see the impact both immediately and then the longitudinal impact, right? So patients who get shot, even if they don't die, they come back to our clinics have conversations with them about mental health impacts. We see their family members. We are members of the community. And ideally, hopefully, we're also leaders in the community. So physicians are a key part of this. Health systems are a key part of this because health systems have the money. And then on the other side, I think these people who bridge this, like the National Shooting Sports Foundation, gun shop owners, like these become natural allies. Because if you ask them or the 4-H, do you think that people should be trained to use a firearm? Yes, of course they should be trained. Do you think that people should be trained in safe gun storage? Yes, of course they should be trained. Should people be accountable for the use of their weapon? Yes, they should be accountable. And so these are things where you can get broad spectrum agreement. And then it provides an immunity against these straw man arguments where it's like, oh, you're just a gun hater. So you want to like take away our guns or, oh, you just love guns and, and want to shoot stuff, right? So if you can take that noise out of it, and bring people together. And then you just start doing stuff. I don't need Congress to, to authorize safe gun storage. I need the gun shops in town to work with me to provide cheap or free gun locks that I can give out in our emergency departments. And I need our health system to support the PR side of, hey, guns are a thing. Everyone's got them. Let, let us teach you how to be safe and not get hurt by them. Right? So it'd be great if the government gave us grants. It'd be great if they legislated around this. But what we really need is a community to come together and start taking steps to solve this. And it can be done. And I think we're starting to see a little bit more of it. Talk a little bit when you say we're starting to see some movement there, something uh, fighting the inertia. What sort well, of yeah, I mean, are you seeing? Yeah, yeah. Well, right, like CNN and Fox News aren't going to report on progress on this topic, right? Because let's be honest, they're about making money and just... Like our politicians are, we have performance politicians right now. So they're not going to talk about incremental change. They're going to talk about dramatic things so that they can raise money. If you look at people doing work on this, University of Colorado, a colleague of mine from residency, Emmy Beth, is a leading researcher on this. And she's worked again closely with the National Shooting Sports Foundation, the 4 H, and a guy named Chris Barsati, who's also an emergency medicine physician. They've been working a lot on this topic. And then there's a group called Affirm, which is now associated with the Aspen Institute. And they have been leading the drive on this. And basically the question is, or the framing is, let's take the public health approach. Let's bring together people who own guns and people who are really concerned about gun violence. And let's start walking through where the information leads us. And there's a difference between being information informed and evidence-based. And we don't want to get into the, if we wait for evidence-based decisions, we'll never get there, right? Because people, it's so hard to do research on red flag laws or the actual impact of, of putting a gun safe in a house. We need to do it, but we need to do it while we're putting these interventions in place. I guess the point you were making or the question that I asked, the colleagues you have around the country, are there communities where you're seeing these conversations start to unfold or you're seeing 
communities or states or counties that are are willing to try different approaches to gun safety or public messaging or things like that? I think it's scattered. And so I think you have individual leaders, again, who are standing up, especially within the emergency medicine community, the American College of Surgeons, and then to some degree within the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics on the, on the physician side, who are starting to say, look, here are a couple of issues. One is we have to define this as a problem. It's health has a role and public health approach has a role. We need to advocate for funding at the CDC to do research. And then we need to advocate for funding of grants that bring together these basically public, private, or, or academic industry partnerships. So again, a partnership between a place like my shop, an academic institution and a gun source, or my shop and the 4-H or other NGOs that can then go and do these community efforts. That is going on. It's going on in Vermont. It's going on in New Hampshire, both pretty independent states with strong historical gun rights. And it's going on in Colorado. To some degree, it's going on a little bit in North Carolina. And these are the states where it matters because like New York and California are important, but they're sort of different ecosystems. Yeah. So I thought uh, one of the questions that you and I talked about a few months ago when we were initially kicking around the dialogue here, I want to pose to you here. And that is knowing what you know, having done what you've done, having conversed with the individuals you've conversed with. If you were appointed king for a day and given full reign on this topic around gun violence, what would your edict be? I would take, uh, so estimates again are that gun violence costs us about $560 billion a year. That's twice the budget of the of Department of Education, right? That's a pretty large amount of money. So if I was king for a day in the US, I would say you have $560 billion. I would bring together the key stakeholders on the gun ownership, gun rights side, and I would bring together the health systems and I'd bring together the advocacy groups and I would tell them that you have 18 hours to come up with five recommendations to spend that $560 billion. And I want to know how we're going to implement it. And then I would just put a consequence on it, which is if you don't, then you all are going to have to come together and owe me $550 billion. But, you know, I, but I mean, in seriousness, no, though, I would leverage our government. So I would put HHS and CDC on this and say it's a health problem. We need to research it and study it just like anything else that impacts health. I would put together a commission that's empowered to make some of these decisions. And I know it's kind of like wonky and lame, but. I would, I would give them a budget and I would say, execute and I expect you to execute. And then I would focus on creating this culture of gun safety and accountability and responsibility around guns. Yeah. And I guess if I might lead you a little bit to, I think, where your own perspective has evolved, but gun safety is a key element yeah. of this. I mean, we're trying to limit gun ownership or, as you say, begin to define guns that are okay and guns that aren't is a little bit of a dead end wormhole. but. I guess your experience and thought process yeah, I mean, look, this yeah, organization yeah, of, look, maybe we can at least get consensus around gun safety and begin right. making that easier and educate more educated and things like that. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the problem with the king for a day argument is like it, once I say it, it like changes the argument that we have afterwards. Because like in reality, if I was king for a day, I would eliminate most of the guns. I would say that if you want a gun, you need to like you buy it. It gets registered. You have to have training on it. You have to hold insurance on it, which makes you accountable for anything that happens with your gun. And then if you want certain types of guns or ammunition, you have to do additional training, pay additional taxes, and then there are additional regulations around it, just to be honest with you. Once I say that, all of a sudden it goes into these arguments of like, oh, well, then the government's going to come take our guns, right? And so I was, and I apologize for the sort of like lameness of my king for a day answer, but like the reality is like we have to be pragmatic about it. 
And so I think that that's why the focus on gun safety and accountable gun ownership is important. And I get a lot of blowback from my friends and colleagues who really want an assault weapon ban. Like, I get it. Like, I've carried an assault weapon and I've shot one. And I think it's dumb that we have them on the streets. But like that personal view can't influence what I'm trying to do as a clinician, as a community leader. I have to be able to get past that to say, look, the optics of kids carrying ARs is bad. But the fact is, most gun deaths are from pistols and half of them are suicides. And even most of the murders are not from a solo. So like focus on the issue. We got to hyper focus on solving the issue. Building around at least one key tenant that you would offer is gun safety. Can we? Yeah, I mean, I think. Can we mandate gun locks? Can we distribute them? Can we use these budget dollars in that sort of vein? I think so. But also this has become a political divide. And so we look at like, what do people value on both sides of the political aisle? One of the things that at least people state that they value is accountability and responsibility, like across whatever the topic is, and especially on the side that tends to want less gun regulation. They want accountability and responsibility for benefits on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, right? Like if we're going to be intellectually consistent, then we should want accountability and responsibility across all of the things we have a right to do. You can't have a right without responsibility. And so then we come down to, okay, we have a right to have a gun, but with that right, what responsibilities are attached to it? Safely storing that gun, that's a responsibility. Understanding the dangers of the weapon, that's a responsibility. Making sure that people who don't own that gun or don't know how to use that gun don't have access to it, that's a responsibility. Making sure a kid doesn't pick it up, put it around in the chamber and shoot their sister, like that's a responsibility. These are the things that have to go with a society like ours, which has a bill of rights. And as my friend Richard Haas says, needs a bill of responsibilities as well. What a great statement. Dave, as you know, our listeners are your colleagues around the country, clinicians, practitioners. And I guess as we wrap up, what are your thoughts or suggestions or even your ask for those that who are listening to our conversation for some reason, which is unique to them? Where would you point them if they're hopefully feeling um, stirred to try to take their own small step towards improving the gun violence crisis in our country? Well, Shane, it's a great question because a lot of times people see the magnitude of the problem and they feel like they can't do anything. And so they, they start to check out and they say, well, I'm going to focus on something else. And this is a topic where that is very natural, but there are a few things that any physician can do to be engaged. And it requires a bit of courage and a little bit of action. So one is, regardless of your specialty, your professional society has a gun violence and a firearm injury prevention policy. I don't know of any specialty that doesn't have a, a professional society statement on this and then a way of engaging. And so if you do nothing else, look into that because usually what they do is they'll have five or six recommendations. And even if you engage on one of them, you know, you're doing something and it gives you the sense of at least taking some action. And the other is be willing to have a vulnerable conversation about firearms. We learned, again, during the pandemic, despite all the noise about anti-vaxxers and vaccines and stuff, like physicians and healthcare providers are a trusted voice in the community and they're leaders in the community. And we have the ability to bring together people from both sides of the spectrum and have a good conversation. Like Part of what we do as physicians is we have conversations with people and we explore. That's the essence of the history of present illness, right? Like, why are you here? What happened? What are the, what's the context? It's the same thing here. Have that type of conversation with people with different views. And try to do that more often because as we talk about it, it brings people together naturally. 
So they don't get anchored in these talking points and yelling back and forth, but they start to have conversations. And if you do that, then the community can start to take take some action as well. And then finally, you know, I mentioned these earlier, but one of the leading groups on this is a firm. They're affiliated with the Aspen Institute, Rand and Kaiser Family Foundation and Pew all have very, very good data and data visualization on the problem set and then data on what interventions have been shown to work, maybe work, or don't have data. That's a great place just to get started, to get educated on, on the issue a bit. That's excellent. Dave, thanks so much for your your time and your perspective on this. If somebody's listening and is thinking to themselves, I'd love to reach out and connect with Dr. Callaway, where can they track you down? The best email is probably my work email, which is david.callaway, C-A-L-L-A-W-A-Y, at atriumhealth.org. And certainly be very happy to talk to people, very happy to point them in directions to people who are better experts on this than I am. And again, Shane, thanks for bringing up this topic, because obviously it impacts our daily life, it impacts our mental health, it impacts our community, it impacts our economy. And unless we're at least talking about these complex issues, we're not ever going to get any movement on it. Yep, for sure. Well, thank you again for your time. And um, here is uh, hoping to a change in this topic in the coming uh, days, months, weeks, and years. So, and thank you for listening uh, as our podcast listeners. uh, Grateful for you. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. If you have um, thoughts or questions, topics that you'd like me to unpack on the show here, if you have guests that you think would be great to have a conversation with, email me directly at shane at prosperousdoc.com. Thanks so much. And I'll see you back here next time. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.